Hi, you're listening to the Sermon Recording Podcast of Awaken Church. Awaken is a church of missional communities whose vision is to see individuals experience healing through the gospel, be raised to their fullest potential among community, and sent out to live a life on mission. You can find out more online at awakenvb.com. And if you live in Hampton Roads, we invite you to check out our worship gathering in the Haygood area of Virginia Beach, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, I'm glad to be back with you uh, teaching this week. Last week we finished our Illuminate series, which was going through the book of 1 John. And throughout that book, we really tackled two themes that we wanted to to cover. We tackled God is light. Um, and we the first three or so chapters of 1 John really hits that kind of more heavily. And then we kind of see a transition in that chapter to this idea of God is love. And so God is light and God is love were the two themes that we really wanted to pull out and focus on from the book of First John as we read through it together. We're transitioning into a, a new series this week. Uh, this is going to be the, the first week, and we want to kind of carry that theme through. So instead of uh, talking about God is light and God is love, we feel like it's really appropriate, given current events and the current cultural climate that we're in, to do a series focusing on uh, what the church looks like, how the church can be light and love in today's world. The church should live and operate in such a way that it brings light and love into the world around us. So that's what we're going to be focusing on as we go through this series. It's going to be kind of a long one because we want to really take time to tackle this well, to really drill deep and to do some teaching, to do some uh, looking at scripture and to do some real practical equipping for how we as a community and you as an individual can live in such a way that brings light and love into the world around you. We don't do this very often, but I thought it was appropriate. Uh, I'm going to do some recommended reading for this series. So a lot of what we're going to be teaching and what we're going to be covering is coming from a few books. And uh, you do not need to read these books to to appreciate, hopefully, what we're talking about during this series. Hopefully we can teach the content well enough that you don't need these. However, if you would like to go even deeper than we're going to be going, we want to let you know wh- where what we're talking about is coming from. And so three books that I would recommend if you want to go a little bit deeper into the topic, if you're a reader or, and uh, you just would love to go even further into what we're talking about, there's three books. Uh, the first one, is called Love Over Fear, uh, which is by Dan White Jr. You guys may remember a few months ago, uh, Dan came to town. He came through and he we hosted an event for him. He came and spoke about the content of the book, told some stories, and we had some time to do some roundtable discussion around some of the ideas. Some of you were there. Not everybody was able to be there. But a lot of what we are talking about in this series is going to come out of, out of that book. Another book that we'd recommend that we're going to be pulling some stuff from uh, even in today's message is called The Church of Us Versus Them by David Fitch, who's a professor at Northern Seminary and um, outside of Chicago. Uh, so The Church of Us Versus Them by David Fitch. And finally, uh, the last book is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. So if you're interested in what we're talking about, if you appreciate uh, the direction that we're going and you want to go deeper, I'd encourage you to look uh, look up those three books because they all do an incredible job of speaking to the things that we're going to be talking about and we're going to be borrowing uh, a fair amount of content from those books for this series. To start things out this week, I just want to have personal admission, I guess, some confession time. Um, I blocked someone on social media this week. 
I don't know if you can relate. I don't know if, if uh, that's something that you do regularly. I don't usually have a whole lot of guilt about hitting that block button if there's somebody that I feel like just is somebody I don't really want to interact with on an everyday basis. I, I like to look at social media as an experience that I curate. And so if somebody's going to bring negativity into that experience and, and make it less than what I'm hoping to get out of it, I usually have no guilt hitting that block button or that mute button. This was a little different because it was somebody that I have had relationship with in the past, not somebody that I have close relationship with right now, but somebody who was in my life for a season and then moved out of my life. Um, and I and I honestly, this time, I really wavered back and forth. I, my, my mouse kind of hung over that button. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to hit it or not. And it wasn't just that this person was expressing an opinion that I didn't agree with. I think we need to have room for diversity of opinion. Um, it had a lot to do with the manner in which they were expressing this opinion that I didn't feel, uh, represented himself well or the, um, the body of Christ very well. And so I ultimately did hit that block button, but I did so with a much heavier heart than I usually do. And I think it's probably because I was already starting to wrestle with some of the things we're going to be talking about in this series, because social media, if we're not careful, it's very, very easy, whether we mean to do it or not, to create an echo chamber where we exist, right? And if you're not familiar with that term, an echo chamber, um, you know, when you are in a cave or a large room or something and you yell out and you hear an echo back, it's just reflecting back what you said, right? You're, you're putting an idea out there and it just comes back to you in that same way. And so an echo chamber is when you are not getting anything, you're not hearing or, or taking in anything different than what you're putting out there. So it just serves to reinforce what you already believe, right? And sometimes uh, creating these boundaries is, is a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. We talked even last week in the introduction about how some ideologies and some views can be harmful to other people. And so sometimes creating boundaries around certain uh, points of view and certain people can be, can be healthy, but we want to be careful that we don't just do that with impunity and without thinking about it. Because when we set up these echo chambers where the only opinions that we're hearing are the ones that we already hold, um, yeah, it feels good, but it doesn't create uh, tension that will allow us to grow. Sometimes we need to be challenged in the things that we believe in order to grow and develop and mature as people. And it also doesn't create any space for us to create real and meaningful relationships with people who believe differently than we do, which is what the kingdom of God is, is built around. And especially if there's somebody who believes something different than you do that you wish didn't believe that thing, um, unless you have real and meaningful relationship with them, there's there's no opportunity to try to lovingly and gently show them uh, why you believe the way that you do and why you believe that what they believe is toxic or harmful. And so uh, we need to be careful about creating these echo chambers. And it's really, really hard because everything in the world today, social media, news media, print media, I mean, everything around us is is really playing on uh, this idea of polarization, that it wants to put you in one camp or the other and create uh, this, this gulf between you that uh, creates animosity between the two. It's an us versus them. And so what happens is we get separated into these camps and then these camps are defined by who is in the camp and who is out of the camp. And then the, these camps create identity markers, right? Things that define who we are so that we can easily identify, okay, are you in my camp, or are you out of my camp, right? And it's not bad 
in and of itself to have values that define a group, right? We at Awaken Church, we have values that define who we are as a community. Uh, but once a value gets divorced from any real life practice or context in which it exists, then it only serves to divide us and to identify people that we can say, okay, I'm in and you're out. And so it divides rather than bringing us together, which is what we would want our values to do is unite people around values. And I understand there's a there's a, a, a fine line between uniting around a value and dividing against uh, somebody who's not for that value. Um, but I think that's the line that the tension that we need to carry. Um, David Fitch calls these uh, banners, right? These are banners. So you get put into a camp and then you hold up these banners that signify who you are and what you're for and who you are against. And so these banners, they're empty ideals uh, that are completely devoid of context, something that at one time stood for something, um, but now just seems to serve to divide people. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of the TV show Scrubs. Uh, it was a, sh- a show that I, I watched regularly that I loved for a long time. And if you're familiar with the show, you know that uh, season seven, there was a, a writer's strike and everybody thought that was going to be the last season. But then they came together to do a season eight and and they had this really great opportunity to close out uh, a, a series because they thought the previous season during the strike, they weren't going to be able to put the ending on it that they wanted to. And so, you know, you get a lot of stuff, whether it's How I Met Your Mother or Dexter or even Lost, uh, where people complain about how a series wraps up. Scrubs was not one of those. Scrubs just had a fantastic series finale and everything was really was was really wrapped up really well. And then not long after that, it was announced that they were going to be making an additional season, which was odd because people thought that they had wrapped up the story really well. And then, so they came back for a season nine and uh, it was different, uh, different showrunner, uh, different writers, um, different producers. The majority of the stars didn't come back. Even the main star, uh, Zach Braff, who it's, you know, the show revolves around, only showed up for a few episodes and then was out. And it just wasn't the same show at all, but it still it still had the Scrubs moniker, right? It still had the, the all the things that you would expect to see of, of of the TV show, but it was nothing at all like what it originally stood for. And 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 banners are the same way. If you'll pardon my little meandering uh, illustration, banners are the same way. They seem to stand for something, and they probably did at one point stand for something good, but instead they've come to just signify who's in and who's out of a camp. They they've lost what made them significant to begin with. Uh, as an example, uh, I, I think about politics, right? And, and two uh, recent, uh, relatively recent campaigns and elections, we had a few different campaign slogans. And so if you think back to Barack Obama, his, his campaign slogan, if you remember, was change you can believe in. Um, more recently, uh, uh, the most recent election and the Trump campaign, they had make America great again. Um, the interesting thing about these as in the way that they serve as banners, right, to rally people and then to separate people, is that neither one of them actually stands for anything. Um, change you can believe in. What did that mean, right? What did that mean to people in the, the suburbs of Chicago? What did it mean for more affluent people on the coast? Each one was able to kind of ascribe meaning to what that meant. Oh, well, if I don't like this, then this I'm, I'm for change in this area. But what one person saw as a change they could believe in versus what somebody else saw as a change they could believe in could be entirely different. The banner itself was empty and just allowed people who were already in that camp to rally around it and separate everybody else who was not in that camp. The same can be said for the more recent slogan, the Make America Great Again. Great in what sense? Is that economic? Is that in social programs? Is that inequality for all people? At what point were we great and when did we stop, right? 
the, the banner itself is empty and allows the people that are coming to it to ascribe whatever they want into that banner to mean what they want it to say. And so in doing so, it rallies people around it and then it pushes away everybody else who doesn't fall into that camp. Um, even the church likes to participate in this enemy-making machine, as, as David Fitch calls it. Uh, the church, um, and I don't mean necessarily individual churches, more the, the church as a whole, uh, likes to uh, can hold up things that make it different than the world or different than uh, the secular culture um, and say, look, you're either one of us or one of them. You either agree with A, B, and C or you're outside of the camp. Um, and it doesn't even matter if A, B, and C were once good and valuable things, if they bring health and fruit and, and richness into people's lives. Once they begin to be used solely to create division, then they're no longer uh, they're no longer good values to rally around. They just become banners that are used to, to create in and out crowds. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, refused to do this. Um, Maybe the, the biggest example that we can see of this is uh, in who Jesus called to be his closest and most trusted friends. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus' disciples uh, were made up of, of, of really disparate and, and, and many times contentious groups. Um, you had uh, He called several fishermen who were just salt of the earth. Uh, the salt of the earth guys who uh, worked with their hands at a lot of hard labor. It was a, it was a tough job. Um, he had uh, zealots uh, who were uh, considered by some to be a terrorist organization. They were radical uh, political party uh, who protested the Roman occupation using violence. Um, they did not believe that the, the Jews should be under Roman control. And so they, they fought against that uh, using, using violence. You also had a tax collector um, who was a, a, a Jewish man, but who would have been aligned with the Roman state and so would have benefited from that relationship with the with the Roman occupation and and made his profit um, off of the backs of his own people. By overtaxing them, um, he was able to make a profit for himself. And um, so these people uh, in, would have hated each other, right? To, to paraphrase, paraphrase uh, Dan White Jr., it would be like today if we were starting a missional community and we said, okay, we want to put together a disciple discipleship core uh, with a few wealthy, you know, affluent tech entrepreneurs, um, a few blue collar Trump supporters, um, a few members of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and then a couple members of the KKK thrown in for good measure, right? It's, it's, it's doesn't make any sense. And, and when you try to think of uh, how that plays out practically, it seems like a nightmare. But Jesus was able to take this diverse and contentious group and unite them around community and mission showing a glimpse of what the kingdom of God was like. Uh, from the very outset of his ministry and the calling of the disciples, Jesus made it clear that his movement was one that was going to buck the us versus them system altogether, that he was going to refuse to participate. And that's what the kingdom of God should look like. That's the example that we were given. But people didn't uh, like this. They didn't accept this. People still tried to force Jesus into the us versus them enemy making machine, tried to get him to choose a camp. And I think one of the um, most obvious examples of this comes from the gospel of Matthew in chapter 22. So uh, I'm going to read this uh, and then we'll come back. This is uh, Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22. And this is what it says. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're 
buttering them up a little bit. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Uh, there's a lot going on here, and you have to have a little bit of the, the cultural and historical background of the time period to truly appreciate what, what's going on in this story. Um, it says the disciples, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus, and so they sent their disciples along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a group of people uh, that they, uh, were, they were Jewish people who were sympathetic. They aligned with Herod, the king who was, uh, was over, uh, put over in authority over them. Right. And so the Pharisees set this trap by bringing people who would be really against the Roman occupation and then people who are really sympathetic towards the Roman occupation. And so they set this trap by saying, okay, Jesus, is it right for us to pay this imperial tax as Jewish people? Um, if we don't believe in the Roman occupation, if we don't believe in the the, the Roman uh, system of morality or whatever the case may be, is it appropriate? Is it right for us to pay this tax? And they thought they had set this, ta- this trap perfectly, right? If he says, no, you don't have to pay the tax, then uh, one, the Herodian would would lose he would lose their support and also probably would be arrested and, and and jailed for encouraging people not to pay their taxes but if he came in support and said yes absolutely you should you should pay your taxes and and came uh, through his support behind that then the people like the zealots in his own party and other Jews who really resented the Roman occupation he would lose their support and so they tried to set this trap and Jesus uh, refuses to fall into this us versus them. He refuses to fall into the camp A or the camp B. And instead he challenges uh, their whole idea. He challenges the notion that they're presenting him with to begin with. So Jesus holds up this coin and he says, whose image is on this, right? And and so Caesar's image and inscription would have been on the coin. It was inscribed with his image, right? And so Jesus says, uh, holds up the coin and says, whose image is this? And they say, Caesar's. They say, okay, give to Caesar, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And so if a coin bears the image of Caesar, who bears the image of God? We do, right? We as people, we are image bearers. We bear his image. So Jesus is saying essentially, yeah, whatever, give Caesar Caesar's money. You really shouldn't be so hung up on money anyways. Your concerns would be, it should be instead what you do with what belongs to God, which is every part of you. How are you living your life? How are you using everything that you have? Not just what, what you set aside for tax or not. How are you using everything that you have in a way of serving God whose image is inscribed upon you? And so Jesus refused to fall into this camp or this trap. He refuses to choose a camp and he refuses to participate in this enemy making us versus them machine. And I think in doing so, leaves a really great um, example and a really great legacy for us as the church that we need to follow. Um, For the church to live in such a way that brings light and life into the world today, 
uh, we also have to resist participating in the enemy making machine and this us versus them camp mentality. We're going to be talking about ways to do this as we move throughout this series. This is just an introduction to the idea and to kind of set some foundation and set some some um, groundwork for where we're going to be go throughout going throughout this series. Um, and in light of that, I wanted to leave us with a few questions for you to ponder through, for you to discuss with your family and, and discuss with your missional community. And so here's a few questions that um, you can use to do just that. And so the first question, why is it that banners... And the us versus them mentality bring comfort to people. What is it that makes that so appealing, that draws people to do that so naturally? Why is it that banners and the us versus them mentality bring comfort to people? The second question, this is where we turn reflective, right? We look inside introspective a little bit. Um, Be honest with yourself. What are banners that you use to identify the in versus the out crowd? These can be, uh, I mean, anything, whether it's uh, beliefs that you have, whether it's um, things that you look for in somebody's life, maybe it's a a character thing, or maybe it's, um, who knows, I'm not going to try to fill in your blank for you, right? But all of us do it. And so spend some time thinking and trying to identify what are banners that you use to identify the in versus the out crowd in your own life. Finally, the last question, and this is more of a a challenge step. uh, How can you make space to share a table with someone who sees things differently than you do? How can you make space to share a table with someone who sees things differently than you do? Uh, This can mean uh, differences politically. This can mean differences culturally. This can mean differences racially or ethnically. This could mean uh, differences socioeconomically, right? Um, Not tying you to any one of those things, but how can you reach out to somebody who maybe sees things differently than you, has a different perspective than you do, and create some space to share a table, whether literally or figuratively, right, uh, to be able to learn from one another and to learn from one another's experience. So again, that last question is, how can you make space to share a table with someone who sees things differently than you do? Thanks for uh, for participating in this virtual worship gathering again this week. Uh, I hope that these continue to resource you, continue to, to lift you up, continue to encourage you, and most importantly, continue to challenge you to what does it look like to be the church in this current cultural moment? What does it look like to live in such a way that brings light and life into the world, especially as we look at the news and social media, what's going on in the world? How can we um, resist the enemy-making machine that forces us to look at people who believe differently than we are and say, you are an enemy. And instead say, how can we create space for people who view things differently to come together around uh, this idea of light and love, to be able to share relationship with one another and to see the kingdom of God grow uh, amid culturally, ethnically, um, ideologically diverse people groups as we unite around these ideas that Jesus united his uh, own disciples around these ideas of community and mission around the kingdom of God. God bless. We'll see you next week.